A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't understand how one could ever justify the idea that it's safer for people to be walking around with a bag full of pills that they don't know what's in compared to doing it. I wouldn't say that any evidence would point towards the idea that being able to know what's in your drugs encourages people to use drugs. Like, I, I, I can't convince myself of that. Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. I've just come off editing this really, really interesting episode with Matt Hutchinson, or Matthew Hutchinson, as you may know him. He's a comedian, also a doctor, which those two things go hand in hand obviously but they really do because matt has got such a knowledge on the subjects we're going to be speaking of i didn't know what to expect from this conversation but oh my word i loved it absolutely loved it and hopefully matt's going to be back because yeah you'll hear from this episode that he really knows his stuff so let's get straight into this we're speaking to matt hutchinson on stop and search you're listening to scrubius pips distraction pieces network brought to you by acast in association with elite uk law enforcement action partnership across the world here we go behind your barricade Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search. And yes, we're going to be speaking to Matt Hutchinson or Matthew Hutchinson, depending on how you know him. Go find him on Twitter. And I'm looking at it as we speak. And it is at HutchUp. So H-U-T-C-H underscore up at Hutch Up. So go find him there, please do. And we're getting this episode out now because he's got an Edinburgh show. Yeah, he's going to be at Edinburgh Fringe Festival at the Assembly George Square Studios. And I think, if I'm reading the website correctly, his run is from August the 2nd to the 14th and the 16th to the 27th. Uh, please go find it. Look him up on Twitter or go to tickets.edinburghfringe.com. What's on Matt Hutchison Hostile. The name of the show is Hostile, so please go find him. If I was in Edinburgh, I'd go be finding him because he's he, he's very critical in this episode. He's, at the end of the conversation, he said to me, I don't feel like I've been that funny. But he doesn't have to be. A, he is. I, I personally laughed a lot. There's a lot I had to cut out. Um, but there's elements within this as well where how can you be funny when we're talking about drug-related issues? You know, <laughs> it's not always comedy gold. But Matt's going to be on again, hopefully, because he's he's so interested in the subjects we're talking about, drug law reforms, social justice reforms, uh, evidence-based policies. So I've reached out to Matt and said, you know, are we going to do more? And he's very much interested in that. Hopefully some live stuff as well, because we're going to be going back to the live format, which we've enjoyed in the past. But as I said, go find his Edinburgh show. Please do. Find him on Twitter. And... While we're on the shout outs, if you want to follow the work of Leap UK, it's at UK Leap on Instagram and Twitter, ukleap.org on Facebook and our website. And of course, Police for Reform is our global banner of law enforcement action partnership. So go find us all. 
don't just don't just agree with us share us use us subscribe all of that thing it all helps anyway let's get back to matt he is a really interesting guest i'm gonna stop babbling and as ever caveat from me i have a cold in the episode <sighs> yeah and thankfully matt's got a, a young child as well so we we end up weeping each other the laps over the uh, the parental issues that we have to face on that note let's get into this episode thanks a lot now thank you so much for joining me today matt because I, I can make a really lame joke now, but this is the easiest appointment I've had with a doctor in a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I can appreciate the problem as well, because I think obviously we see both sides in healthcare in the sense that lots of GP surgeries are open, but equally then see patients who haven't been able to see their GP for sort of weeks, months, etc. So there's definitely something going on with regards to that. Yeah, yeah but I'm going to make you. a list of ailments that I'm going to put to you. So. Oh, fine. I'm, I, I'm, so the thing is, people always go, oh, I'm so sorry to talk to you about medicine. I'm so sorry to this. But I actually like, particularly in the, once you've got an hour to chat about someone's problems rather than a sort of pressurized 10 minutes appointment, it's quite nice sort of, you know, chatting to someone in a way where you know what you're talking about. You can actually help people. So I'm happy to talk about anything, to be actually, honest. Let's start on that point then, because I know you from stand up, but of course, you're a practicing doctor. So, how long have you been practicing and, and what was your training? Yeah, so I graduated from medical school in 2012. So it's coming up to my 10th year of being qualified. Um, and I mean, I've mainly worked in the south of England. Sort of all of my training has been in London, apart from one year in the glorious Basildon, which was a very fun year. Um, and I don't know how much you know about the structure of medical training in the UK, but you kind of go through kind of progressively narrowing rotations, if you like. So when you start out for your first couple of years, you'll do sort of four months in surgery, four months in hospital medicine, four months, you might do four months in GP, that kind of thing. After a couple of years, you kind of plump for either, I want to be a surgeon or I want to be a physician, so a medical doctor working in a hospital who doesn't treat surgical problems, or you might say, I want to do GP or paediatrics. That's roughly the fair breadth. I mean, there's other specialties as well. So then you do a bit more of medical training for sort of two or three years. It's now three years, which I've did. And then you choose a subspecialty. So I chose rheumatology, which Again, it's a weird specialty that most people don't know really what we do. Um, but historically, it used to be joint diseases. Um, now it's broadened out to kind of autoimmune uh, inflammatory diseases is kind of the mainstay of what at least we'd like to be treating most of the time. Um, but alongside that, I still practice general internal medicine. It's called so hospital general medicine um, alongside it. Um, it's kind of what I do in specialty. And then further complicating things, it's a bit of a speech, um, but I'm doing a PhD at the moment um, in COVID and inflammation. So the majority of my time I actually spend in a lab um, day to day is I'd say 90% of wow. my week at the moment. So presumably uh, you're interested in long COVID and things like that? Um, certainly, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so I guess it's kind of evolving as we kind of understand COVID quite a lot, because I mean, I think Early on in the pandemic, the kind of cool, trendy aspect of it, for want of a better term, was the idea that um, kind of severe inflammation uh, in the body and particularly the lungs was causing quite a lot of the severe disease we were seeing. Um, so kind of that was what was supposedly putting people in intensive care was excessive immune response causing damage. So that's certainly still the case, although the vaccines have reduced how many people are actually getting that kind of disease. So shifting the relevance a bit. Um, but in addition, it seems to be emerging. I mean, this is quite a young field, so I don't want to overstate anything. But it does seem to be appear that there's quite a strong immune component to long COVID 
Um, but I mean, long COVID as an expression is not the most helpful term anyway, because it could range from anything from, you know, truly, you know, immune consequences of having had the disease to people who've had direct lung damage as part of this, you know, long intensive care uh, stay would also have long COVID, et cetera. So it's, you know, sometimes needs a bit unpicking as to what we mean by that term. So what, so what other conditions would you be dealing with in, in the field of uh, rheumatology? Rheumatology, yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, classically, historically, that you know, part of what would give it its title was things like rheumatoid arthritis, so kind of inflammatory arthritis um, that can affect people of any age, causes joint damage and disability. But in addition, it's um, kind of more unusual conditions. So I don't know if you know much about lupus. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, which is an immune condition that can basically attack any body system. So, you know, it's kind of the body recognising itself as foreign and attacking it. Um, so it could cause joint pain in the same way. It can cause rashes, hair loss, but it can cause things like it can cause heart attacks. Uh, it can cause strokes. So it's quite a breadth, uh, like a breadth of uh, symptoms those patients get. And they can get very sick. Um, and then other immune conditions as well. So things called like, so there's a spread of conditions called vasculitis, which again is quite niche. Uh, but it's again where your body starts attacking uh, blood vessels, etc. Basically, anything that came up on house as a possible diagnosis often is something to do with rheumatology. So, so all of this does ring true to me because, as we were saying before we recorded, uh, you know, I, I'm quite out there as being an ME patient for over 30 years now. So lupus was one of the things I was tested for, and of course fibro gets put on top of that. So, so your yeah, broad realm is quite of interest to me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we certainly see a lot of patients with the, exactly your type of situation coming for answers with kind of fatigue and that kind of thing where... You know, it's kind of what's going on. I do have a few opinions actually about Emmy as well, in terms of uh, what is likely to have changed post-COVID as well, which I think we could go into. Yeah, please, let's go into that um, now. Yeah, it's going to be. Because I mean, I think. Because I mean, there's always been just well, there's just there's always been this idea that people with certain you know features of either chronic fatigue or Emmy or whatever one wants to call these things, and even things like fibromyalgia are post-viral. Um, and there's been kind of more or less belief in that, but not a huge amount or enough research done on it. But I think COVID has given us a kind of almost single impact controlled episode where a pandemic has basically given a whole host of people something that looks very much like ME or chronic fatigue or whatever one wants to call it um, in a way that kind of demonstrates quite robustly that a viral injury can cause fatigue and all of these other symptoms and kind of I think gives a lot more support historically to people who've got ME and associated conditions and says look these people have clearly or some of them at least might have had some kind of viral insult that's given them this kind of knock-on poorly understood effect and I think probably we'll end up with hindsight apologising to the ME and chronic fatigue community who've been telling us for years that you know they've got all of these symptoms and they're experiencing them and not been addressed in a sort of systematic way by enough people anyway. So obviously there have been lots of doctors who do deal with it but certainly we've not given it the attention it deserves. I mean, yeah, this, we get a lot of listeners who've got a, a range of conditions to this podcast because of various subjects we're going to get into but my own anecdotal experience and their anecdotal experience is that we don't get believed. You know, there has been this constant battle because there's no tangibles and you know the biomarkers are tricky and things like that. But as you said, there's a lot more progression on the back of long COVID. Uh, and I use that in inverted commas. But also you, you might have seen recently that there's been a lot more progression in the House of Commons. Uh, there's been more narratives coming forward uh, of patients. Is, is that an exciting time for all of us? Yeah, I think I agree completely because I think the thing that 
gets quite artificial and is quite a shame is that the lack of knowledge and understanding and also to be honest lack of things that one can practically do for patients that puts in front of you ends up creating a kind of adversarial relationship that you don't really want to be there because I think often two things can get confused because obviously my perspective from the rheumatology point of view is we as a specialty have a whole host of you know drugs that are very effective for these truly recognized well better defined autoimmune conditions that when we give to people it turns off their disease process but they are also often quite serious heavy duty drugs with a lot of side effects potential toxicities and sort of potential to do damage so in someone coming to you who has been investigated where they think oh, i might have lupus or do i have chronic fatigue when you find they don't have a disease you understand like lupus you're left trying to tell them i don't want to give you this toxic drug that will do you no benefit and potentially harm you um, and i believe your symptoms but i don't know the disease process has been caused that kind of somehow goes through a filter and a prism and comes out the other side of i don't believe that you even got a real problem wrong with you um, and you're kind of essentially being fobbed off and often there is no reason to keep that person in your clinic in the sense there's probably nothing you can actively do for them but then they feel completely abandoned and there's no true solution to that in the current framework as it exists i'd say it certainly does from a patient's perspective get quite tricky because you do quite often have a distrust for the medical profession because of just the legacy that's gone on with it so to get that kind of response from you is for my benefit you know really really heartening to to hear someone that's starting to understand that is is that a generational thing is it because you know you're younger and start to understand the evidence differently potentially i would say i think I think there's almost kind of a sweet spot in the sense that potentially fine, you might have had people 30 or 40 years ago who were quite um, sort of rigid in the sense of, I can't see this thing, therefore it's not a thing. But I think oh, there's almost like a paradox because, I mean, if you were to go back 50 or 60 years ago, we didn't have biomarkers for any of the diseases we treat in rheumatology. So it's probably almost done like a sort of undulating graph where you had people say 50 or 60 years ago who were like okay i don't know what's wrong with the person in front of me but i can see they're tired then as all these blood tests came in they said oh i can tell you've got lupus you may have got a cohort of people who suddenly said well if you don't have this you can't have a problem go away um but then as we've you know sort of society hopefully becomes in some ways at least a bit more compassionate doctors that's kind of filtered into you know that's kind of influence the current generation but i feel i'm better at having those consultations now having been doing medicine for 10 years than I might have been, say, two or three years in where you have a very narrow understanding of things and you're more limited in the scope of what you're willing to do and say in a consultation rather than, you know, having time to be compassionate as well as focusing on the medicine, I'd say. It's something you learn as you go through your career. So I think it's probably a sweet spot of doctors maybe in their late 20s, early 30s <laughs> who are probably better at dealing with that sort of thing. And, uh, and as we were saying before, we as, press the, the big red buttons of record, that there's some really interesting areas that I want to speak to you about, about opioids and other such drugs that, are, you know, there's a lot of demonization now. And some, some of it obviously is we need to discuss because of the marketing, the way the big pharma works in the US uh, and here to a degree. Um, so if, if you were yourself to, to see a patient like me, how ready are you to prescribe opiates? Uh, I think it entirely depends on the context. So I think in hospital, um, I would say, uh, for want of a better expression, fairly liberal with them in the sense of if someone's having an acute crisis once they're in hospital, then I think that is perfectly appropriate. So if someone comes in with a severe episode of back pain, you may want to, if they're an extremist, give them something that would fall into the opioid category or that you'd try and avoid it potentially. In terms of the clinic 
based approach. I mean, I think our expertise, certainly within rheumatology, is switching off the inflammation, um, ideally. In terms of dealing with pain symptoms that are left over after that, I often refer people onto the pain services themselves. So there are, um, at least in lots of hospitals, um, teams of specialised anaesthetists who run pain clinics. Uh, they're quite oversubscribed, so patients can take a long time to get to them. But I think they are probably more expert in using opioids in that context, because as we sort of you alluded to, knowing what the evidence is in terms of safety, um, both in terms of addiction or at least habit forming behaviour, um, and also even things like the excess risk of death with opioids, which we can come on to. Um, is really hard to nail down what the actual evidence is because you've got on the one extreme the Purdue etc so Purdue Farm the people who made OxyContin and marketed it fraudulently claims of very small addiction being based on very very shaky data but actually it's not like there's really 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 good data as far as I can tell on the other end in terms of more accurate data as to how many patients who are given opioids for pain chronically in an outpatient setting develop habit forming uh, behavior that's harmful like i don't i've not seen really strong robust evidence about that either so you're in a very gray area as to what is safe to do um and then there is the fact that sort of compared to certain other drugs there is a slight increase in uh mortality in patients taking opioids even aside from overdoses but again that data is not great and it's probably actually not always that much worse than things like i don't know if you know much about that like gabapentin and other drugs that are anti-epileptics that are used for pain like they themselves have um, you know an increased mortality compared to patients not on them and that kind of thing so all of these drugs have those kind of signals and it's really hard in terms of the landscape to know where one is like i'd emphasize i'm not a pain specialist so take some of this with a bit of a pinch of salt but <laughs> but it, like i said to me it's fascinating because i don't get to have these discussion mm -hmm. often especially as a patient that quite often i am having to justify my own opiate use because of uh, the numbers, you know, sometimes the numbers look different on the screen to how they do in real life. For example, this week I'm going to, or next week I'm going to be having about a leave, so therefore I'm having to put in a prescription earlier, uh, which by the numbers that looks like I'm overusing, but it just means that I'm actually getting prepared for the next, you know, section of pain that I'm into. So from a doctor's point of view, what are the, what are the flag ups for you, and how ready are you to have these conversations that are potentially patient led, that dependency is a subjective word it, dependency doesn't mean necessarily addiction but it means that you're on a raft of survival that you might lead some extra things some extra crutches what what's that like for you mm -hmm. as a doctor so, to have those conversations yeah i mean i would say certainly i'm for want of a better term a bit shielded from it in the sense you know we work in a hospital setting as rheumatology so often the closest i'll ever see people often is maybe once every two or three months and usually it could be six months in between so often those kind of more close reviews of patients taking things like opioids will fall to their gp um so it's one of the more difficult components of the gp setting is people asking for things like tranquilizers and painkillers um so my wife is a gp she certainly says that some of these things are you know, difficult for her. And often when you hear about people talking about changing drug legislation, the impact on GPs is one of the things that needs to be considered. For example, in your situation, if I were to meet you today in a clinic and think, oh, you know, he looks like he's going about all of his, you know, sort of duties, jobs, etc., that kind of thing, doesn't look to be having any kind of problems, he's got a sensible explanation as to why he needs this particular thing, I probably in that situation be like, okay, maybe I can probably prescribe this. But 
as a kind of safety net say but why don't you come in next week just for a chat just to see how things are going um just to see if i'm wrong to see if i've misunderstood or misinterpreted that kind of thing so you might keep a closer eye on someone who's asked for extra drugs just for both of your sakes really um, that's in an ideal world in the real terms you would do that and then go oh hang on my next appointment isn't for three weeks i can't do yeah. that so <laughs> that is the reality i think so i'm talking about an idealized world like i'd love to see my patients far more frequently because you know you can see what's going on and adjust any mistakes that you've made this is this is going to be quite a broad question on the back of what you just said there but how ready are you to listen to patients because my personal experience is that quite often uh, you can be talked down to in a medical profession especially in regards opiates and things like that are you ready to listen to patients and, and find out what they're going through and, and their life stories as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, often I think I would say there's two factors to that. So in terms of just listening to people, I think you should listen to everyone, regardless of whether you take their advice in terms of things like prescribing. So certainly just in terms of listening, you should always do that. I think most of the reason people don't do that I mean, obviously, unless they're very jaded, is just time pressure. So strangely, I find more pressurised a face-to-face -face clinic appointment than, for example, seeing someone who's very unwell in hospital who's having a heart attack because you get a very different pressure in the sense that, you know, if you're a new patient, you get 30 minutes. Um, and if you're a follow-up patient, you get 15 minutes. In reality, if you've come to see a patient who's a follow-up patient, but they've not been seen for the whole of the pandemic, et cetera, or something's happened or they're in crisis, that 15-minute appointment can take... 30 minutes just to get to the bottom of things and then you've got a whole backed up clinic behind you in terms of people who are then going to be irate because they're 10 15 20 minutes 30 40 minutes late so you just run out of time to listen often you can be sort of quite short and be like right this is what's the problem da, 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 and go through so that's kind of one thing it's just time to listen the other aspect of it i think is in terms of the ego side is someone telling you what they think is right and i think this is something probably more towards younger patients so basically people who are younger doctors are probably more inclined to do this a little bit because they're taught, taught to be less paternalistic but also i think once you work in quite specialized settings with patients who become expert patients often it's quicker to ask the patient what do you think's wrong with you what has worked for you before in the past so it's a skill you learn quite rapidly if you're working in a specialist center that sees a quite rare condition so if, even with lupus patients if i ask a lupus patient oh does this feel like the last time your lupus flared up is this kind of the same stereotype set of symptoms that you had last time that can be often a shorter way to get to the bottom of your problem so i i personally find it a useful thing to do this this is going to be a big question um so you're elected i don't know the president of of who nice whatever it may be um and you used to yeah. set about chronic pain treatment you was going to write the book on it how much of a part would opiates play how much another other medication what what else would you personally do to participate within that yeah. discussion um in terms of so the short the quick answer about opioids i'd say is i don't know um i don't think i have a good enough grasp of exactly what the evidence is for their use in outpatient settings and i don't think there is anyone with a very clear idea of what is safe and what isn't. So I think the argument for that would almost be we need urgent research now with good, you know, sort of epidemiological data, good clinic-based data, etc., as to basically what is the, you know, frequency of problematic use, firstly, and secondly, um, how effective is it? So I think that's quite useful as well. Broader, the thing I find most helpful often when dealing with people with chronic pain patients is often a bit more lateral in the sense that actually, even if you can't deal with the pain, doing 
stuff for the patient that might mitigate their pain or at least allow them to function better is often the more effective thing you can do. Like for example, if you've got a patient who's a chronic pain patient and they're in pain, you could either try and solve their pain or if you find that they live on the 15th floor of a tower block with no lift, doing something that might help them get ground floor housing with kind of better sort of access or help with their job to, to ask their job to make modifications to them could have the same quality effect on their life without directly giving them a pill to treat their pain for example so i think you know policies that address that and enable people to help with that sort of thing would be where i'd start probably uh, and presumably you know, you're going to be aware of the, the practice of harm reduction uh, what can we do we've just spoken about you know oxycontin and, and the brilliant drama that's on at the moment about that whole thing the us have unequivocally got an issue with this where it depends how you interpret it if it is you know uh, if it is societal uh what can we do in terms of harm reduction to make sure that we do lessen the harm to the individual and society and, and i know that's a big question um you mean with regards to opioid prescribing yeah or? and just general uh holistic well-being in terms of because quite often what we find is that if, if someone has got an addiction it's it's the classic example of of, of, of Rat Park. Yeah, you know, it's heavily debated that issue, Rat Park, but it, it tends to be the holistic societal nature of that individual's life, uh, as as well as the 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 pharmacological hooks of the drug itself. So so what would you potentially advocate for in terms of harm reduction broadly? And I talk I'm talking very broadly. Yeah, so I mean, I guess two of those things that occur in tandem or sort of side by side are kind of how you regulate legal, even if they are prescription drugs, I guess is one stream, but then going down the more avenue of some of the stuff that Carl Hart, et cetera, talk about in terms of decriminalizing slash even potentially legalizing illegal drugs, I think would certainly do a massive amount of harm reduction because I think obviously I've, you know, listened to the audiobook, I haven't read the physical copy of his most recent book. And I do agree with quite a lot of the stuff in there. And certainly the thing I think you can't argue with in that is that most of the harm um, as relates to uh, illegal drugs, um, as you want to call them, relates to the fact that they are illegal. Like I can't think of any good evidence that suggests that their current status as illegal does anything but harm uh, both uh, users and society. Have you been keeping up to date as well on the back of that because of the, you know, getting into the regulation of drugs now? Uh, the, the alternative therapies that are coming out in regards to the research in psychedelics, in, in treatment resistant uh, mental health, uh, cannabis use for people like me and me and other and uh, people with arthritis and all range of conditions have you kept up to date with that as well um i mean we couldn't cite exactly how you know these are the outcomes in terms of particular studies but certainly i know that imperial they have a unit that looks at these things with quite a lot of stuff particularly relating to psilocybin um and i think there's a unit in bristol as well doing fairly similar stuff and i'm aware that certainly things have been trialed across a range of conditions um ranging from things like depression etc with both i guess ketamine and uh psychedelics and even things like mdma as well um and even in addition as well, in slightly more, I mean, again, this is limited evidence, but even things like Parkinson's, uh, certain things like MDMA have been trialed, et cetera, um, with some supposed benefits as well in those contexts as well. So certainly I'm you know, aware that those things are happening. I don't know if you know, uh, plugging a separate guest on this podcast, but do you know Benji Waterstone? I actually don't, love you. 
Oh, nice. So this is uh, me doing your right. next bit of booking for you. If you want to talk to someone about that, then he is, and he'll eventually soon be a fairly high profile guest. Um, he's also a doctor. He's a comedian. He's a psychiatrist. Um, he has been involved in, I think it was a depression study, but for Silas Ibin, I think based at Imperial. So he was what's called a guide in that context. So they tried to have a medical equivalent to the kind of uh, shaman type figure um, as occurs in, I guess, more traditional uses of these psychedelics. And um, so he worked doing that. Uh, but in addition, he's a practicing psychiatrist and uh, has a book coming out next year that is, uh, by all accounts, supposed to be a blockbuster, should we say, <laughs> when it comes out. So, well, that's a good point about like the book. So particularly one of the main points that Carl Hart makes is that obviously a lot of these drugs that are illegal have pharmacological and pharmaceutical benefits. Um, and it's purely a kind of societal and social reason why some of them are viewed as illegal, non-therapeutic drugs, like it's a completely false distinction, saying one drug's therapeutic, one drug's not therapeutic. Um, and so one thing I learned from that as well, for example, ketamine, we use that as a sort of drug quite often in anesthesia alongside its use in uh, sort of mental health. Um, but I didn't realise it was uh, derived from PCP or very chemically associated with PCP, which is obviously perceived completely as a sort of American yep. street drug <laughs> of uh, marginalised communities and made famous by Training Day. And also Trading Places, the, 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 the comedy yeah. with uh, Dan Aykroyd that I watch most Christmases. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, from your point of view, you know, again, being a fairly young doctor, it, it, is, is it frustrating when you get the, the, the conversations that come up around illegal drugs and how the research has been hindered over the last 50 years because of what the legislation has done to it. Yeah, I mean, I think, because I grew up, obviously we can refer to, I grew up in sort of doing dance music and associated with those things. So I don't want to be, you know, I won't go into too many specifics, but there are certainly drugs around in those contexts. So I think... Um, I don't want to say that I would, you know, I'm an advocate for anything, but certainly I've been in environments where drug use of particularly party sort of, you know, MDMA related, et cetera, drugs were, was certainly normalized around and alongside sort of things like people smoking weed when you're a teenager. So I think I've always come from a position where I don't perceive the people who use them in the same way that society as a whole might do, you know, this kind of demonized image of people who are reprobates, compared to actually these are just you know rooms full of people going to dark rooms to dance and hug their friends a bit more so and i think that's certainly filtered into how i view drugs as an adult so i don't think anyone with a straight face could tell you that those drugs are likely to do much more harm than you know alcohol which you know fills liver transplant wards up and down the country like it's it's a very difficult argument to make i would say that they're certainly going to do any more harm than the drugs we have that are legalized and smoking i mean <laughs> yeah i mean you strayed into one of the questions i've got written down here is that um your career is really varied yeah you know, we've been speaking about your 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 day job as a, as a doctor but you, you're also a dj and you had a life as a dj which you just alluded to there so what what was that like and you mentioned some of the drug cultures that you saw at that time so yeah so i mean i don't want to overstate it's not like i was sort of touring the country as a dj so certainly i was like as a you know young teenager sort of uh, got into bedroom djing quite heavily and i was really into like the nerdiest end of djing you could be into so like i don't know how much you know about like the technicalities of djing but i got really into sort of what's called like turntablism so like scratching and sort of playing around with records in a way that no one could ever dance to so as soon as the, you know if you saw a dj doing that in a club you'd be like please just play the records and stop scratching like no one cares <laughs> so that kind of stuff was 
that's what I really got into when I was a teenager. Um, but then my friends started going out and we sort of started going to sort of more, like we were really into like fabric when we were sort of 18 or maybe potentially a bit younger. Um, and so started DJing that sort of stuff. And my friends put on uh, quite a lot of parties and that kind of thing. So, you know, you might DJ out at the weekend once every few weeks. Um, so yeah, that was great. It's really great fun. Um, but it's really difficult to try. And I think the problem I found, this is like sound like a bitter old man, was that as I got better at it and got quite good at it, the skill level required to call yourself a DJ and to go out and DJ plummeted because I sort of got good at vinyl DJing and then a good sort of good at CD DJing just at the point that laptop DJing really started taking off. So it became far more about can you become friends with enough promoters and also drag sort of like a hundred people with you to a club, put your laptop on and sort of stand behind it, sort of putting your fingers in the air, then you know, there was there was the bar for entry became incredibly low, and it just became more about sort of networking. Yeah, <laughs> and then it sounds yeah, familiar to me. I, I was yeah. a, a gigging musician from two thousand to two thousand and ten, and we was that we were that last generation of kind of old school. I'm sounding so old now, but like MySpace was just about coming new. and then it all changed into the digital area of like social media marketing. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel I feel like we have probably many of the same uh, bitternesses in that respect. There you go. <laughs> like, oh, my day! There's a podcast in the making there yeah. of, of old musicians no, and it, DJs. That... I, you could literally call it, I could have been a contender. <laughs> I think would have been. <laughs> uh, but no, it's still quite a fun thing to do. And the thing is, like, I've incorporated it into some of my stand-up uh, more recently because um, I think that's one of the cliches to tell you about stand-up is that any skill you've ever had in a former life will eventually make it into your show to try and give you a point of difference. Um, so often if I'm doing a solo show I'll sort of have my decks and just be DJing as the audience come in and that oh, kind wow. of thing and try and play some songs during like you know little snippets of audio during the track like during the show for references and jokes and stuff so you know it's still getting a bit of it Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby It's me, Kiki Palmer Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com time and like, i really want to ask you about your stand-up work because how does the two marry up being a doctor uh but also being a stand-up at what point did you decide that you was going into stand-up 
Yeah, I mean, so I think the re- the way I got into it was very similar to how um, most people get into stand up. Is often you know you think you're funny with your mates, you're really into comedy. Then I sort of got really into podcasting just as I really started taking off. And then when you suddenly realise I'm spending like two hours a day listening to sort of comedy podcasts and doing all this other stuff, it's like if I don't try and do something with this, this is just kind of pathological. So you know, if I don't do it as pathological as if I do, it's kind of it's a job. It's you know, it's what I should, it's a hobby, it's a thing. Um, and I think it kind of coincided with. Um, I, often I think you find this in any career where you can get to this point where you get a bit jaded where you've been doing it long enough that you kind of know what you're doing but you're still quite junior so you're in this position where you have more responsibility but no extra kudos or privileges or anything like that so that was about 2014 so I was about four years into medicine um, and I was like what, what am I doing what's going on here and I was you know thinking of other things I could do to sort of you know lift my spirits and see what else was out there um, and then you just start going to open mics you know the bar again the bar for doing open mic comedy is very low you just sign up and do five minutes it could be terrible but you can, you can go and do it this is going to be a really kind of almost tenuous point but we work with quite a lot of comedians and i think comedians are really useful um, because basically what i'm doing is is marketing you know i'm trying to get people to change their opinions on on a a really ingrained subject like drug policy reform. So we find a lot of comedians have got a lot of use. So that's why we work with people like Nish Kumar and uh, Tez Elias. How important are stand-ups and people like yourself in getting difficult messages across to audiences that might not already be receptive to the issues? Um, I think it's a really difficult question because I think, and I think my opinion sort of swings quite wildly from time to time. I think certainly it can be like the first flag that might get someone to go and read about an issue in more detail so i think just making people think about something for two seconds that might then get them to go and read something kind of semi-serious because i think even like lots of people who do satire i'm sure i've heard nish kumar talk about this before where they often feel like actually despite how effective their jokes may be about a particular subject it doesn't necessarily feel like they're changing anything um i've heard certainly some people say that but i would hopefully be a bit more optimistic about it is that if it can even be the first spark that then gets you to go and listen something so you know because obviously you can have people who are comedians therefore not experts on the subject and then kind of i guess one row adjacent to that would be experts doing popular science uh, work and even things like going back to I could sound like I'm obsessed with it but the Carl Hart book is kind of that type of thing where you have someone who's undoubtedly an expert in their field but then talking about something in a very accessible way um, and even things like science comedy as well as sort of another sideline to that when you have an expert doing those kind of light-hearted things I think it probably can you know you know convey simplified messages to people in a way that they wouldn't otherwise take on board this is this is why I'm a fan of people like Robin Lintz and uh, mm-hmm. Brian Cox with what they do with Infinite Monkey Cage mm-hmm. and a guest on that is a, a mutual friend of ours Dr Susie Gage but one of the things that you can do not just on stand-up but if you get a comedian that's a panellist on Question Time or something like that quite often there can be a lot of power that comes with uh, and also we've seen it recently with Ian Hislop that's just been taking MPs to task in committee rooms is have comedians got more of a power than, than someone you know you're being quite humble but you know, have you got more power than you, you possibly have alluded to? I think, well, I think certainly they've got the ability to speak on the spot and on the fly. So I think if you certainly if you have a well-informed comedian um, and combine that with their skills, that sort of, for example, heckler put-downs, I think they can be very effective in contexts like question time. So I think as long as the prep's done, then yeah, definitely they can be very effective, I would say. How much do you 
from your position ethically, how much do you sit back uh, and think, no, I can't touch that one because I'm still a practicing doctor? And how much do you, on certain subjects that you are passionate about or got an interest in, how much do you then go in, no, actually, I'm going to kind of come in my intellectual power on this one? Um, that's a really good question because I think there can be two things that might make you reluctant. So even things like what we're talking about today in terms of drug use and history of drug use or friends who might be users of drugs, etc., it's really difficult to know what I could even be pulled up for saying in terms of opinions expressed, etc., because we're governed by the GMC and there's not so much like a legal framework. It's more if someone refers you to the GMC for being inappropriate and then a panel um, of the General Medical Council um, officials feel that you have, say, for example, brought the profession into disrepute, you can be sanctioned on the basis of their opinion rather than any kind of direct exact framework. So I think that's certainly one thing that can make you feel cautious. And secondly, is the kind of idea that in the current you know world of everything being recorded and the idea that you can express an opinion that's just factually inaccurate, that can dent your credibility as a doctor slash as an expert. So I think you have to, again, sometimes review what true grasp you have of the facts you're like do i know what i think i'm doing or is this just opinion like you know do i have the data to back up what i'm saying so i think that's another separate uh, consideration as well when answering questions do you do you find your stage life conflicts if you, if you are on stage and you do hold down us what, what is your act first of all do you, do you get into any kind of uh, medical issues or controversial issues um i mean i think my act's fairly broad to be honest i think um I would say a lot of it's about my life, a lot of it's just fairly observational. I do sometimes bring in a bit about medicine just for a bit of colour. So I mean, I think often you're, you'll probably recognise that early in your career in stand-up uh, and in anything, you kind of need a hook. You want it to be the, oh, that's the guy that does dot, dot, dot. You know, he's the so-and-so. Unfortunately, the problem I'm finding at the moment is that there are now way too many doctors who are comedians. <laughs> so that, that USP is somewhat gone. Um, but I'd say I'm fairly broad in terms of like, for example, um, I was writing a show called Hostile, um, which was initially about kind of um, what you might expect being uh, my dad's Jamaican. And so kind of the life experience of people from former Commonwealth uh, countries in the UK and kind of the good and the bad sides of that. But then I've had a baby about eight weeks ago. And so all the material I'm writing is about a baby. So it's just trying to, you know, it's very much about what's going on in my life at any given amount of time. <laughs> um so yeah, so that's yeah, I, I'm not too specific about it, but I certainly bring up that I'm a doctor. I don't hide it, put it that way. Um, I'm going to go off script now. How, how are you doing yeah. with the eight-week-old baby? Uh, we're loving yeah. it, actually. I mean, obviously you have the standard uh, you know, issues in the sense of trying to acclimatise the idea that you may not get more than three hours of sleep at any given <laughs> amount of time is realistic. But I mean, I've been quite fortunate in the sense that, um, A, I'm doing research predominantly at the moment. So as I was saying before, most of my day job at the moment is lab-based. And so it means I can really set my own hours. So often I've actually been going in at midday and working midday till seven um, which then means that I can do like one feed overnight so that my wife can sleep for a bit longer and stuff. So that's been really flexible. And this is going to sound terrible, but uh, my parents live on the same road as me. Uh, and they're sort of super keen to A, help out, but B, just help us around the house. Like my dad mowed the lawn here this morning. <laughs> I'm exactly the same. My parents live up the road yeah. and my dad's been doing woodwork. But, yeah, exactly. It's yeah, great, isn't it? Yeah. So I think we're in the same boat because we've got... We oh, yeah, perfect. I feel much better then about that because, you know, they, they want to help as well and stuff because it makes them feel like, you know, they're more yeah. involved. They get to see their grand... Also, first grandchild, you've got to, you know, take advantage of that at the same time. You know, it's not like sort of grandchild three or four where they're like, yeah, a bit done yeah. with this now. Their first grandchild, <laughs> they're like... 
this this is why this podcast I took a bit of a break because I, I've got a 20 month year old now so I was like oh, with nice. this condition and with that child and yeah. I'm still doing light yeah. feeds as well so yeah I can't imagine that must be tricky with regards we get to... through yeah but yeah so it's congratulations on that that's brilliant oh, thank you very much i've constantly got a cold now that's the other thing that you'll probably find is that you'll you'll be a doctor you're probably going to get everything both in terms of what you're around in the hospital but also in terms of what the child brings back yes that is the case definitely although we've had an early exposure to it as well because my wife's um siblings have all got really young kids as well so it's just constant you know toddlers everywhere <laughs> so you're just like <laughs> I can never not have a yeah. cold as well anyway. So, Well, now I know that you're a lewd dad, this is going to be quite relevant because yeah. some of my, obviously I've been a campaigner of drug law reform for the last 10 years. And then when I had a child, I, was, I really assessed it again as, is this what I want? You know, yeah, I've, I've been exactly, I'm so glad you said that. I've been exactly the same. Like I'm hyper liberal when it comes to the idea of things like legalizing drugs and this isn't as bad as that. But then you're just like, if she came to me and was like, dad, I want to go and start, you know, even taking, yeah, if she wanted to start smoking weed, I'd be like, Ugh. and then it's like, I would go and start, you know, taking pills and go to sort of, you know, this, you know, festival this weekend, that kind of thing. And just be like, eh, not sure that's a good idea. Even though like in my mind on a societal level, I'm, you know, all for people making these kind of informed yeah. decisions, that kind of thing. But I've become much more conservative with a small C as soon as <laughs> it ends up being your own child. <laughs> What what I know, this is going to be really early days, but what kind of advice do you think you might give? Because again, I know that just saying no doesn't work, but at the same time, instinctively, I'm going to be like, just don't take anything ever. But at the same time, we know that that's not going to be you know logistically practical with the world we live in. So, what advice would you kind of start formulating? <sighs> I mean, I guess there's different things, aren't there? Because obviously sometimes there's the risk that you might associate with the drug itself, but then there's also the idea of the risk that you might place yourself because of the effects of drugs in terms of the people you surround yourself with. Because I don't want to, you know, you don't want to tar drug users with the idea that they are any less moral or upsetting than other people in societies. But I think just by virtue of them being illegal and kind of underground, that then does put you in contact with people who are, shall we say, I don't want to say dangerous, but certainly should we say more danger adjacent um so it's kind of things would be like you know don't get in a car with anyone who you think's been either you know drinking taking drugs etc um have an idea of if you're really going to go and take drugs know who you're getting them from don't you know take a huge amount all at once the first time someone gets a bag of you know new pills that kind of thing i mean like i don't want to sound like i'm advocating any of this sort of stuff but it's the same advice you'd give to anyone like try a small bit before you try the whole thing <laughs> that kind of thing um drink lots of water like all of those kind of things i guess so, so being a know. dj as well in, in a past life and a present life mm -hmm. have you kept up to date with the work of things like the loop drug test festivals and things like that um, I mean, I sort of encounter it in terms of, just, you know, you see those things going in and out of festivals, etc. I mean, um, my understanding is obviously, I think you can give them to them, but you don't get the results back yourself. Is that still the case? I think you do. Um, I think I, I you believe. do now. Okay. Yeah, I'm a, a bit out of the loop now. That's, that's <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but That's why they pay me the medium bucks. <laughs> but yeah, I'm very sure that you do get the results back so that, that you can get a, you know, mm -hmm. an understanding of what you are ingesting. Does that sound Yeah, because I think that's essential. Yeah, completely. Like, I, I don't understand how one could ever justify the idea that it's safer for people to be walking around with a bag full of pills that they don't know what's in compared to doing it. I wouldn't say that any evidence would point towards the idea that being able to know what's in your drugs encourages people to use drugs. Like, I, I, I can't convince myself of that. Um, 
And I think most of the places in the world where they've decriminalized drugs has not led to a sudden spike in those drugs. So I don't think drug testing either is likely to do anything like that. <laughs> we, we touched upon it earlier with, with our opiate discuss, discussion, but if someone, at least isn't necessarily your field, this would be more of a, you know, a, a subjective point of view, but if someone was suffering with an addiction, presumably you, know, you, you think that that is connected to mental health and that criminalization isn't the way to go. At what point did you kind of put all that together and grasp that? Well, I don't think I've ever been of the opinion that I believe drug prohibition on any large scale is beneficial. Um, so certainly, it's, I mean, I think my perception of how these type of things should be has probably evolved over the last couple of years, I would say. Um, but I think I've always been of the opinion that certainly being addicted, depending on what one believes by that term, is not a criminal, you know, act. And most of these people require support, both in terms of the addiction itself, but also more broadly, usually uh, socially, than any kind of punishment. So I think having some way of administering the drugs, if they do need them for their physical side of things, while also giving them the kind of social input they need is always going to be more effective and probably cheaper than kind of pursuing these things down a criminal route. Like if we spent all the money that we spend on policing drugs, um, and particularly in terms of trying to sort out things like organized crime, like, you know, and sort of from border control, all of these different sort of aspects that it takes to keep drugs illegal, and instead spent that on supporting people who use drugs and just improving sort of people's societal position more broadly, I think you get a very cost-effective way of improving people's lives. Yeah, sounds very sensible. What's it like for your perspective of policy making you know i can be critical of it because i'm single issue and this issue is it's catastrophic uh there's going to be issues in, in 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 medicine that you must have issues with 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 underfunding and overstretched but what's it what's it like watching policymakers at work at the moment with regards to legislation that seem eminently sensible that just isn't moving um you mean specifically relating to drugs or just drugs uh, and, and just generally just policy making how it's become it, it should be evidence-based and led by you know committees and things like that but in, you know you could certainly make the case that it's done a lot more in terms of media narratives now and, and how it looks for the the the, the, the uh, voter public and, and the core publics that they're going for in regards to if you're tough on drugs then that's that quite often speaks to the middle classes and things like that is it frustrating it certainly is from my perspective but is it frustrating for you witnessing how policymaking has evolved into this new homogenized version of certainly well i mean i think sort of, i guess frustration in terms of inaction um certainly with regards to drugs like i can't really think of much that's evolved on a concrete way that would impact people's day-to-day -day lives with regards to recreational illegal drugs in my adult lifetime like you know if you were to compare I and mean, i think was it um small amounts of cannabis were kind of vaguely but not really decriminalized for a period of time like i don't know the exact sort of terminology or the legal status that that engendered but if you compare that to the position in america that's gone from very strict prohibition to at least state level uh you know commercial marijuana or cannabis use um and sale um 
and we've just got nothing that that conversation doesn't even really seem to be happening here um and i think when you look at the harm that's done to communities unnecessarily through uh certainly criminalizing cannabis like i'm not not a cannabis user uh, at least not a regular person using it but um I, but just in on behalf of people who do use that drug like the harm done to communities through policing it compared to the clear lack of harm in making it freely available in the u.s just I, I can't understand it at all you mentioned that you've got jamaican heritage and that mm. culturally you know cannabis use and jamaican heritage goes together but also as you mentioned you know it is both communities that are carrying the weight of drug prohibition one of the things that we want to advance is the social equity programs that are going on in america with regards to people that have been harmed by their drug laws get a stake in a legal industry mm-hmm. is that does that yeah. sound sensible I think it sounds completely sensible, but I would say that as well, it doesn't sound, at least my understanding of it, like it's been done on even a big enough scale in America. So, I mean, certainly there are certain states that seem to be employing that, but if you look at the people who are still making out like bandits from the uh, commercial cannabis industry compared to the number of people who are still in prison from, you know, cannabis related charges, um, it would still suggest that there's quite a long way to go before equities achieved in that context. Um, but I think, you know, I, it certainly should be the case. Like, I think the day that you make cannabis legal, anyone whose conviction is ultimately just down to either possession, um, et cetera, rather than associated adjacent things. Like, you know, obviously if you've got crimes like violent crimes associated with the trafficking of cannabis, that becomes a bit more complicated, but certainly anyone who's in prison for having, or has an even criminal record for possession of cannabis, I think it should be expunged immediately. It's ridiculous. I can be dev- devil's advocate now that we've mentioned that uh, oxycotin was was basically marketed in America. Mm-hmm. If if we are to listen to critics, and it's something that we certainly take on board with this side of the argument, is that should we have commercialization in any kind of new legislation? What can we do, and what can we learn about commercialization? We you, you mentioned smoking as well, how we've we've done things and tweaked legislation mm-hmm. on that. Is this something we need to look at as well? Um, I mean, I think obviously with any drug, like I don't think, and I think it's one of the things one has to always be cautious about distinguishing is that believing people should have the choice to use drugs is not to say that you don't think they have potential to harm. Um, and so I think any marketing, if you're going down the full commercialization rather than, for example, just making cannabis medically available by the government, etc., one would have to have another think about how you permit people to advertise things, but much in the same way that you can't market tobacco um, and you can market alcohol but with restrictions on who you can market to when it can be marketed and you know how it can be marketed i think that would need to certainly be considered in any legalization steps that uh permit marketing i'm going to put you on the spot now because you need to get mm-hmm. back in the lab any second now uh, but no i've got about 15 minutes i think one of the things that i like yeah. to to literally put well not literally put people on the spot but quite literally put people on the spot is that if you if we were to have this conversation in 10 years time and you were Prime Minister, which I'll definitely vote for mm-hmm. you. What do you think <laughs> that you'd be doing uh, to to legislate, uh, to to make amends, to make changes, make society a better place? What what would you do? Um, so, I mean, specifically with regards to drugs, I think assuming there was no need for a kind of stepwise process, if I could snap my fingers and change things overnight, just introduce a law in a kind of uh, dictatorial kind of way, I think I would do all of the things we've really discussed. Like, I think most drugs, um, I would put on a par with alcohol with certain caveats. So I think obviously the one that I know, I wouldn't claim to be an expert, certainly things like um, 
cannabis and most of the in inverted commas party drugs i think would be somewhere in a sphere alongside cannabis sorry, alongside um, alcohol in terms of availability um i think my, i don't know enough about the physiological effects in terms of so you hear different things about things like cocaine and heroin for example so uh, some people make the very strong argument that taken in isolation uh, at known doses um, neither of them is actually that much more dangerous if at all than uh, alcohol there are certainly other experts who would conflict very strongly with that so i'm not going to claim that i know that particular thing but generally speaking deregulate deregulation or no sorry legalization but with some degree of regulation i think would be the way i would go and kind of in tandem with that treatment for people who um, are demonstrating problematic behavior and also being a prime minister you're also a practicing doctor still so do you think you would be potentially in 10 years time could there be a conceivable way that you're describing psychedelics and uh, cannabinoids um if i was working in that context certainly so certainly cannabinoids i actually could see that quite readily because in the sense for example neurologists as kind of a off-label last line treatment are already prescribing cannabinoids for epilepsy like that's a, a thing people are doing day in day out um in terms of new uh, pain medications um i think certainly drugs acting on cannabis or cannabinoid receptors uh will become more of a mainstay as they you know are further researched you see it's almost a weird paradox slash shame that it has been under the medical umbrella rather than just people being able to use this what seems to be a fairly innocuous drug because i think people for example you get all these things about mental health etc and you constantly have debates etc about oh does it cause this etc but there's no good robust evidence for example like people talk about psychosis that it induces new true psychosis or um you know schizophrenia in people obviously you can give you psychotic symptoms and if you have one of those diseases it can certainly exacerbate those things but i think that's one of the kind of straw man arguments that gets put up around cannabis use as well yeah quite often what we found is an anecdotal that people that have got mental health problems you know they're, they're going to lean towards your substance use because of you know a, mm -hmm. a release system mm -hmm. and I, i've got yeah self-medication yeah, exactly so yeah. it's the you know correlation versus causation argument which always comes up mm -hmm. I, I had quite a weird transition where for 10 years, I was, I was very ostracized because, you know, I was a drug user. How dare you? But then last year at a family party, my aunt start, started recommending me CBD and cannabis. I was like, this has come on a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. I guess you're probably closer in that respect. So that's kind of, it's a bit heartening as well. And I think you're right. The marketing and the frame shift of, oh, well, CBD is fine because yeah. it's not psychoactive in the way that sort of THC is in the sense it's not making you stoned, you're doing it for the relaxation and for those kind of things. So I think maybe in 10 years we might get close to the idea of more accepted recreational cannabis use. Actually, uh, this, this is going to be a really personal question, but have you been yeah. arbitrarily stopped and searched or, or anything like that? Less than you might imagine. So was, I would say it has happened occasionally. Um, so and I had a story about this on stage um, where one of the few times I was stopped and searched was still in not a cool way. Like So not in a way that you could like be sort of be righteous <laughs> indignation. It was like the most lame middle class way. So it was like at the Stop the War protest when I was about 16. Um, and uh, some policemen pulled me over because there'd been sort of trouble around just generally. And they're like, right, we saw you throwing apples. 
like, well, you can't get arrested for throwing apples. It's the least gangster thing in the world. Um, and then when they didn't find any apples on me when they were searching, they were like, right, you smell of cannabis. And it's like, well, I don't because I been haven't been smoking weed. But then they sort of searched me for cannabis and then didn't find any cannabis. So, I mean, that's the one that sticks out. I think other than that, maybe once at Warren Street Station, I think they sort of nudged a drug dog towards me. And again, didn't find anything because I don't walk around with cannabis on me. But other than that, I get stopped and searched less than you might imagine and i'm always sort of quite intrigued as to why that is and i think i think there might be a few subtle subconscious uh, just red flags or signals that i give that are sort of a bit middle class privileged etc um, and it's quite difficult to put your finger on exactly what that might be but i think that's probably part of it oh, one thing i think that was before we did worth bringing up and i was trying to think of a delicate way of describing this but in terms of going back to who gets stopped and searched and even who gets um I guess, uh, the negative impacts of policing of drugs. Like I, again, without wishing to be too specific, knew some people who would sell drugs, for example, when you're a teenager um, and you know early 20s, like people who are part of your extended friend group might use drugs, but they kind of have the strange privilege almost of kind of middle-class drug selling in the sense that there's not violence associated yeah. with it. Um, they're less likely to be searched for all of these particular things. It's almost like a kind of two-tier drug dealing system yeah. whereby if you're from a working class and often minority background, drug dealing for you can be quite a dangerous thing that will involve you being searched and going to prison and you know potentially in gang related etc activities and with risk to yourself whereas then you have this kind of other tier of people who um kind of they're i think that you the secret drug addict mentioned it on his thing where you kind of expand from just selling to your mates and then suddenly you're the guy who sells drugs and then sort of expands from there but you're never in any kind of top boy scenario for want of a better expression you're far less likely to get searched or pulled over that kind of thing and you have this kind of very different drug deal lifestyle so it's certainly something i've observed among people yeah it's, it's really well put we do find the, the the where you are on the social ladder plays a massive part on people's perceptions mm -hmm. of if you're a bad drug dealer or a good drug dealer or mm -hmm. if you're going to a wine and cheese party, it's, it's, it's that kind of... Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. And then someone whips out lines of Coke at the end on the cheese exactly. board. <laughs> yeah, it's, it really does boil down to privilege. It's, it's, you know, it's horrendous. Oh, I'd be happy to come back whenever as well if you wanted to chat more, because it's something I really find interesting. Like, I, you know, just pure interest on the subject. And certainly I could talk for in a definite amount of time about all the things we've chatted about today. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt, for joining us. That was lovely. I really enjoyed that. As you can tell, because I, I opened up in a very personal way, which I wouldn't even do to a normal doctor in discrete circumstances, let alone a public conversation. So it's testament to his character, I think, there. Find him on Twitter, at Hutch underscore up. And please find his Edinburgh Fringe show. So Matt Hutchinson, Hostile. And if I'm reading the details correctly, August the 2nd to the 14th and the 16th to the 27th, 2023, if you're listening to this at the time of release. And yeah, please do support him. I really look forward to getting him back, hopefully in live settings as well, where we can have him on a panel as well, because I think it really worked in that setting. I think there's a lot more to come from Matt on this subject. He's passionate about this. Thank you so much. Also got mutual friends in Susie Gage. So, yeah, maybe we'll get those two together as well. That, that could be quite, quite an interesting chat. And while we're on the thank yous, and shout out to Susie Gage as well. You know, find her podcast, Say Why to Drugs. It's still there on the Distraction Pieces Network. It's still current. It's still absolutely necessary listening. So please do find that. Find the Distraction Pieces Network. Scooby's Pip, who's an absolute legend. Thank you for having us on there. Thank you to John Harris, all you do at Distraction Pieces Network. Thank you to My Name is Ad for the Artwork. 
thank you to Johnny Borrell for the theme tune. Thank you to Tristan, John, and Nikki for producing, especially Nikki for everything you do. My word, you're a legend. And thank you for listening. Um, please do like, share, subscribe, review, all of those things. It really, really helps. It just like I said, don't just agree with us, share us, use us, get us out there. And we'll be back, um, hopefully with Matt in tow, because I think there's a lot more to come. And just keep listening because there's so many more episodes coming up at Stop and Search. And we're going to be broadening this out to a global theme as well. So, yeah, get involved. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray 